Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Happy spring, everyone. Happy May. I hope you all are doing well and staying inside unless it's absolutely necessary to leave your house. This episode is rather late. Um, It was written on Corona time. It's a lot like Key West time, except there's no white sand beaches, so it's not as much fun. But there has been a little bit of drinking involved. I'm sorry it's late. Honestly, my emotions were all kinds of up and down during March and the first part of April. It was just super hard to feel motivated or creative, but I have snapped out of it, and I feel like my normal pre-coronavirus self. So, thank you for joining me today. This is part two of episode two on Pendergast in my series Paris of the Plains. Originally, I thought that Tom would span two episodes, but he actually has enough material that we're going to have four episodes. If this is your first time listening to Homegrown KC, welcome. Thank you for listening. But please pause here and go back and listen to part one, and also the first episode of this series on Prohibition. Last time on Homegrown KC, Thomas J. Pendergast's early years belayed the extraordinary life he would later lead as the boss of Kansas City. Born in St. Joseph, Missouri in 1872, he was one of nine children and moved to Kansas City at the age of 20, where he became an apprentice of sorts to his elder brother, James Big Jim Pendergast, leader of the First Ward. Today on Homegrown KC, with Tom Pendergast stepping into Big Jim's shoes as alderman of the First Ward, he is continuing his predecessor's practice of supporting and defending the downtrodden, while introducing his own methodologies and stratagems to build an empire and become, quote, king of Kansas City, emperor of Missouri, end quote. I found that on a scan of an original document on PendergastKC.com. It was actually used to describe Tom in that period, so I'm going to include that on the website because that was really cool to find. Before we begin to talk about his political life, I want to dive into TJ's personal life. And you know what? I realized I haven't given y'all a physical description of him yet or really described his character, so I'm going to take a moment to do that. Historian William Redding described him as, quote, a blue-eyed, light-haired heavyweight who stood 5 feet 9 inches, weighed in around 200 pounds, and excluded energy from every pore. His head was planted on a short, thick neck, which had the rugged look of an oak tree trunk. The impression of hugeness about him was emphasized by his massive face, great jaw, large mouth and nose. He looked both formidable and engaging, for there was a humorous glint in his eye, a jaunty air in his bearing, and a sentimental quality in his expression, along with the domineering impression of savage power. The total effect made him one of the most arresting figures ever observed in Kansas City. He drew attention wherever he went, and men remembered him from one look. End quote. That's from his book, Tom's Town, Kansas City and the Pendergast Legend. Historians Larson and Holstom described him as 
hefty and report that he weighed over 230 pounds and was 5 feet 8 inches tall. So he's kind of average in height for a guy, but he's a big guy. And if you ever see a photo of him from the 30s, he kind of reminds me of Boss Hogg from the Dukes of Hazzard TV show. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever seen that or not, but I'll include a comparison photo for you on the website. He's not as comedic as Boss Hogg, but I do think they look similar physically. Holston and Larson also say that in his younger years he had, quote, a full head of sandy-colored hair and a stylish handlebar mustache, end quote. I haven't yet found a picture of him with a handlebar mustache, and um, personally not a fan, so I'm not disappointed by that. But I am going to keep looking because I'm kind of curious. They also say that he liked to eat very plain food and had a, quote, coarse and gravelly voice. Pendergast himself claimed not to drink much. Maybe that's true. I feel like it's probably not, though. And he really liked to smoke cigars. He was kind of well known for that. He disliked small talk. Same, Pendergast, same. And he spoke really common English, so he's not all prim and proper like an English gentleman. But, uh, you know, he sounds like a regular guy for the time. He did not enjoy wear, wearing formal clothing. Uh, they also wrote that he was, quote, often curt and cold in his public demeanor. Intimate acquaintances supposedly found him quite congenial and capable of telling good stories and antecedents frequently about people he knew, end quote. Again, same. It's just so much more comfortable and easy to talk to those you know well, you know? Apparently, everyone thought him extremely intelligent and cunning, and I must confess that after all this research, I have to agree, but y'all can decide for yourselves. He is also not a patient man, and he has quite the temper, and he's not humble, but he is supposedly known for being a man of his word, which I rather like. So overall, he sounds kind of average, um, just super ambitious and super cunning, and that's what allows him to do all that he does. He followed in his brother's footsteps, um, not only politically, but also in his personal life. His brother married a widow, and Tom, too, married a widow. Caroline Elizabeth Dunn Snyder, she went by Carrie, they married in 1911. I have two different wedding dates for them. The Kansas City Investigation by Rudolph Hartman says it was January 25th. But findagrave.com, which is a really good website if you're doing biographical um, information or memorial information, says February 3rd, and pendergastkc.org also says February 3rd, so that's the date that we're going to go with. For reasons unknown, at least to me, TJ always claimed that they married in 1907, but like I said, we're going to stick with February 3rd, 1911. He would have been 39 at the time, and she would have been 28. Carrie was born on April 10th in 1883 to Luke Dunn and Carrie E. Haley Dunn. Her father owned a saloon in the West Bottoms and her mother was a washerwoman. She had one older brother, Luke Frederick Dunn, who was born in 1880. And her father died in 1882, just six months before she was born. He was only 34 or 35 at the time, and cause of death was never determined, so... Because he was so young, and it wasn't something obvious like a carriage accident, I'm kind of wondering if maybe he had a heart condition? I don't know, totally guessing there. Um, her mom died in 1910. I don't have any information on her first husband, Mr. Schneider, but she did have a child with him, Marceline. 
Marceline was born in 1910, so that's a very important year for her. My main source for Carrie's life, which is findagrave.com, also said that Marceline was never adopted by Tom, but that Marceline used his last name after they married, after her mom married Tom. That's pretty common, even today. Holston and Larson, however, claim that she was Tom's biological daughter and that she was born April 1911, not 1910. So, I don't know, there's a lot of overlapping dates between 1910 and 1911. Maybe Carrie and Tom were together for a while, maybe Marceline really is his biological child, it's unclear to me. Anyway, Carrie and Tom had two other children together, Thomas Jr., born in 1912, and Aileen, born in 1919. I'll have some more information about the children at the end of um, Pendergast's life. Tom, Carrie, and their children lived in this gorgeous little mansion at 5650 Ward Parkway in KCMO. It still exists. It was built in 1927 by the J.C. Nichols Company and designed by Edward Tanner. Now, Kansas Cityans are sure to recognize Nichols' name, and Tanner is a very well-known architect, but if you're not into architecture or historic buildings, you might not know who he is, but he is very well-known. Um, both of these men will be subjects of a future episodes. All right, so let's talk businesses. Tom was very entrepreneurial. He owned several businesses in his lifetime. The most prominent two, I would say, are the Ready Mix Concrete Co. and the TJ Pendergast Wholesale. Now, I can't say if one had more impact than the other, and I'll explain why later. His very first um, personal business venture, not working with or for any of his brothers, was in 1902. So he would have been 30 years old at the time and had been living in KC for about eight years. He teamed up with a guy named Cass and opened a messenger service called Hasty and Hurry Messenger Service. He and Cass had met a few years before when they both worked at a concession stand at a local horse racetrack. Um, they were pretty successful, and they soon bought out their competitor, the Speedy Service, and they changed the company name to the Hasty Hurry and Speedy Messenger Service. Really, that's a little bit too much, Tommy Boy. In 1908, it became the Hasty Speedy Hurry Messenger Automobile Transfer and Livery Co., that name's even worse, but I guess you're being very clear on exactly what you do. Again, they're really successful. They expanded six years later. Larson and Holston speculate that their employees, all young men of a like age and personality to cast, um, they refer to them as a rough lot. Uh, they speculate that they ran numbers or were used for other gambling endeavors. Tom withdrew from the company in late 1908 or early 1910 in preparation for joining the city council. Um, it's about the same time, however, that he opened a saloon-slash-buffet with Edward J. McMahon. It was called Pendergast and McMahon. You know, what else are you going to call it? They were very successful, and eventually they owned five saloons together. You know, nothing that I've read so far has mentioned what happened to Big Jim's saloons after he died. And I really wonder who took over those businesses, because remember, he had multiple saloons. Um, but I don't have access to that information. I'd really have to deep dive into city and county records. And unfortunately, that's currently unavailable because of the pandemic. Anyways, in 1911, Tom opened T.J. Pendergast Wholesale Liquor with John Pryor and Philip McCrory. And it's at that same time, no, sorry, it's a, a year later, 
that he sold his half of the saloons to Eddie. So he and Eddie had only been in business together for two years, but they had five saloons in those two years. Very successful. Um, his liquor company was also very successful. He used his strong-arm politics to force the saloons in his ward. And this was a rough and rowdy part of town, so there's a lot of saloons. Um, he forced them to buy liquor from his company and only his company by threatening them with code violations if they did not. He also owned a restaurant at East 8th and Walnut called the Oriental Cafe and the Jefferson Hotel on West 6th Street. Now, the Jefferson Hotel is fascinating. In his book, Kansas City Jazz from Ragtime to Bebop, Chuck described the building as, quote, a six-story brick European-style hotel, end quote. If you know anything about Pendergast outside of this podcast, um, because I haven't actually gotten to this topic yet, but you are likely to have heard of the Jackson Democratic Club. Originally, I was kind of wondering if Jackson was named after President Jackson, um, but then I found later that the very first edition of this club was established by Big Jim in 1900. Uh, it was located at 716 Delaware, and um, it was actually the Jackson County Democratic Club. So Jackson is Jackson County. That's where Kansas City is. Anyways, um, here at Jefferson Hotel, this is Tom's first rendition of the Democratic Club. It's his HQ, his seat of power. I'll get more into the club later in the story, but I wanted to mention it here again because this is the first place where Tom has his office. It's in a little room just outside the lobby of the hotel. Now, the hotel is technically not a house of ill repute, but you could rent rooms by the hour, and it had a, a notorious reputation for, let's say... Sensual trysts. Uh, the fifth floor was permanently reserved for poker games run by Booth Bagman, an associate of Tom's. And uh, this reputation was further enhanced by burlesque shows and cabarets down in the basement. I also want to take a quick moment and mention the Monroe Hotel, which was next door to the Jefferson. According to Hartman's The Kansas City Investigation, TJ bought the Monroe in 1924. It had 101 rooms and 60 bathrooms, and he used the hotel to recruit people to his organization by letting them stay for free. So I'm thinking it was something like, I did you this favor, now you gotta do me this favor, and I just snowballed from there. Other businesses associated or owned, uh, associated with or owned by TJ include, and there's a lot of them, um, I believe I counted 16 or 17. The W.A. Ross Construction Company, Alice Beverage Co., Boyle Pryor Construction, Centropolis Crusher, City Beverage Co., Commerce Coal, Eureka Petroleum, Glendale Beverage Co., Kansas City Concrete Pipe, Kansas City Limolith, Maryland Casualty, Massman Construction, Midwest Asphalt Material, United States Fidelity and Guarantee, Sanitary Service Company, Missouri Contracting Corporation, Midwest Paving Company, Midwest Pre-Coat Company, Dixie Machinery and Equipment Company, 
and the Welch Sandler Cementco. Okay, so I was counting on my fingers while I did that. It's actually 20 companies um, owned by or associated with Pendergast. I found a map online which lists most of these and it shows their location. So I'll include that on the website as well. Now you'll notice that about half of these are construction companies and the other half are liquor companies. But the fact that it's construction, that's going to be key to remember for later in the um, story. I think the next episode. Um, and I'll also talk about the Ready Mix Concrete Co. in the next episode. Swinging back around to Tom's personal life for a hot second. Beginning in 1916 and continuing unto his death, Tom suffered from and was medically treated for Cupid's disease, uh, also known as syphilis. Okay, back to the politics. That's what you're all really interested in. So after the death of his elder brother, Tom stepped in position as the boss of this well-oiled machine. His brother had groomed him. He was so ready. And he made some incredibly advantageous partnerships that boosted his machine and gave him greater control over the politics of the city and the region. Everything's moving right along. There doesn't seem to be any significant events during the early years. But then America joins World War I. Now, World War I... And its impact on the city will be its own episode someday. So for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to skip it. All you really need to know is it began in 1914. American joined in 1917 and it ended in 1918. In 1918, we also have the influenza pandemic. Well, we don't have to do a lot of imagining about that, do we? There have been a lot of comparisons recently about our current pandemic and the one from 1918, which was actually great for me because it meant that there was plenty of articles online to use for research. But that also means it ended up being a deeper rabbit hole than I expected. And honestly, if we weren't living through the pandemic right now, this would have been a lot more interesting to research. Um, But I hate this current version of the plague. I'm sure you do too, so I'll make this really quick. If you want a fuller recounting of the history of the, quote, Spanish flu, that's a misnomer, by the way, Um, you can listen to the first episode of this podcast, Will Kill You. It's a podcast about infectious diseases. Or you can listen to the episode done by the uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class podcast. Um, Both are really great. I will include links to both on the website. The quick and dirty is this. A strain of the flu started at an army training camp in western Kansas, and then it spread to other training camps in the U.S. as, you know, soldiers moved around. When soldiers went overseas to find the war, it just went rampant across the armies. Um, I don't remember why it's called the Spanish flu. I feel like there's a very large element of racism and nationalism behind that, so I never call it the Spanish flu. Anyway, according to the CDC, an estimated 50 million people died from that pandemic, which is more than the total estimated deaths for World War I. That's insane. Kansas City was one of the hardest hit cities by the pandemic because businesses stayed open for so long. So, you know, we're about to reopen. We probably shouldn't. I found a master's thesis by Susan Deborah Sykes-Berry from 2010 on this topic titled Politics Pandemic, sorry, Politics and Pandemic in 1918 Kansas City. This thesis is really good. I'm going to include a link to it on the website as well. Essentially, Pendergast and Joseph Shannon's fights for dominance of the city meant that city government was divided and completely ineffectual. 
So there was a Dr. Gannon leading the charge to protect the city's health, not Pendergast. And he faced strong resistance from business owners who were supported by the mayor. Her thesis um, gives a day-to-day description of his attempts to implement safety measures and the struggles that he faced. Um, then it also talks a little bit about the city's fight against a second wave of the disease in the spring of 1919 because they had stayed open and also largely because after the war ended everyone decided to go out and party super hard because they were you know happy that the war was over and but that just made the disease spread so we should stay home and wash your hands i have a quote here um that she gave in an interview with kcur quote tom pendergast controlled saloons when they did finally get around to putting in a quarantine saloons were exempt they just let them stay open because nobody wanted to challenge Tom Pendergast, end quote. So I think it's fair to say here that TJ's open city policy was to the city's detriment in this case. By the end of the influenza pandemic, Kansas City's death rate was 718 deaths per 100,000. And according to an article by the Kansas City Star from last month, among the top 50 cities with the highest death rate at that time, Kansas City was number 17 out of 50. The total number of deaths equaled well over 2,000. And the KCK neighborhood of Strawberry Hill actually had to, um, there's a church there that had to establish an orphanage for all these newly orphaned children from, from this disease. Uh, nationwide prohibition began in 1920. It was legislated by the 18th Amendment. Those of you who have listened to episode one of this series, and I'll reiterate here again, if you have not done so, please do so immediately. Um, You'll know all about how it affected Kansas City. Basically, not at all. Women also gained the right to vote in 1920. Yay! But women's suffrage is a huge topic, so again, I'm not going to discuss that here. That'll be a future episode. As I said earlier, Boss Tom made sure the saloons and the bars stayed open in Kansas City. So everyone just continued to dance and booze and, you know, overall it was a big party. Um, I'll also take a moment here to encourage you to listen to my episode on jazz in Kansas City. There's a huge overlay between jazz and prohibition. Uh, TJ was really busy in 1919. After the 18th Amendment was passed, it was passed in 1919 but didn't go into effect until 1920, he closed the Jefferson Hotel and sold the property to the city for almost $80,000. He also attempted to have the Volstead Act, which had been passed in order to enforce the 18th Amendment, declared unconstitutional in a federal court, but obviously was unsuccessful. So in preparation for the onset of Prohibition, he closed Wholesale Liquor, and then he reopened it as T.J. Pendergast Distributing Company, selling medicinal beverages and soft drinks. Medicinal there is slightly sarcastic. Again, listen to the Prohibition episode, you'll know why. Several changes within the social and political landscape of the twenty uh, of the city in the early 20s helped Tom expand his base of support and consolidate his power by 1925. The first is a change in the alderman system. So this change was originally proposed by businessman and philanthropist William Volcker. He suggested that the alderman system be disbanded and replaced by a city council of nine men who would then elect a city manager to 
basically run the city, which meant that the mayor's power was significantly reduced. The first man to be city manager was Henry Francis McElroy, and he was handpicked by Pendergast in 1926. We will talk more about McElroy in the next episode. The second event, and this is the really big one, occurred in 1924. It's actually basically the whole year of 1924. Allow me to introduce Casimir Cass Weltker. I mentioned him earlier. He and Tom had a messenger service company together in the early 1900s. And I didn't give you his bio then because I was saving it for now. So Cass was born in Michigan in 1873, and he moved to Kansas City in 1882 when he was nine. And like Pendergast, he was the son of Irish immigrants. Also like Pendergast, he later owned a construction company. I believe it was among the ones that I listed for you guys. He grew up in a section of Kansas City known as Little Tammany, named for Tammany Hall, which was another powerful center of boss politics in New York City. Our Little Tammany was located in an area that crossed ward lines between the 6th and the 8th wards. He became a plumber before he went into business with Pendergast. In 1910, he became a county judge. I'm guessing that's about the same time that Pendergast became an alderman. And I didn't see, I don't know if Cass sold the business, the messenger business, to somebody else when he became a judge, or if he kept it. None of my sources said anything. Again, this is something I'd have to do a deep dive into county records in order to figure out. But he's a plumber, he's a businessman, he's a tough, a brawler. He never went to law school. He did eventually pass the bar in 1922, but I never saw anything that said he earned a law degree. So I have to wonder, how did he get elected judge? It's possible that his buddy Pendergast helped him out, but I think it was probably Joseph Shannon because Cass was a longtime supporter of Shannon. I have a quote here from Paisley. Quote, Welker developed a reputation for being sympathetic to people in trouble, establishing a lifelong pattern of friendly offices toward ex-convicts. End quote. He also says that he created a justice mill where regular folks could, quote, deal with their legal problems without need for expensive lawyers and time-consuming procedure, end quote. So, as I said, he's a lifelong supporter of Shannon until 1924. So, sometime between 1910 and 1924, he had become the boss of Little Tammany. Each ward had its own boss, basically. So... Although Tom is known as the boss, he's not the boss yet. He's just one of the bosses. A very powerful one, but just one of. Anyways, uh, he became the boss of Little Tammany by gaining the support of black voters in his district, um, by helping them find employment and feed their families, and he had a black hospital built. So, it's the early 1920s, Kansas City and the nation are super segregated, of course. Kansas City had several black neighborhoods, um, but the one in Little Tammany was located between Charlotte and Cleveland, and 10th and 12th. So, 1924 is an election year. Uh, nationwide, more Republicans were being elected in the early 20s than Democrats. Um, in the spring of 1924... 
Republican Albert Beach replaced Democrat Frank Cromwell as mayor. Now, Cromwell was also a rabbit, a, a supporter of Shannon. And according to my sources, it was widely believed at the time. No proof, just the consensus of those who lived at the time, said that Shannon played dirty and he helped Beach get elected, even over his own guy, in order to try and gain more power than Pendergast. Apparently, this pissed Cass off. He told Shannon to kiss it, and then he realigned himself with his old buddy Tom. In return, Shannon absolutely refused to support Pendergast's guy. You may have heard of him. He went by the name Truman. And he temporarily aligned with Miles Bulger, who was the boss of the second ward. Even with Cass's support, Truman lost that particular election. But without Cass, Shannon's support base was severely damaged. And the final thing that solidified Tom's power occurred in 1925. The ward lines were redrawn. So I can't find the original source that told me why. All I have is my note that says that it was redrawn and that the first ward basically doubled in size. So in 1925, the first ward expanded to include the fifth, which is basically modern River Market and Columbus Park. Um, it also now included half of the sixth ward. Um, I think basically that's the power and light section and some of the second. And the ninth ward, which included 18th and Vine, I mentioned that back in the jazz episode, um, and the ninth ward is Shannon's home base, got divided up amongst three other wards, the ninth, the twelfth, and the eleventh. The new ninth ward is the old seventh ward, so he's with completely new people. So 1925, Shannon's power base is completely decimated, World War I is over, the influenza is over. National Prohibition is in full swing. It's the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz Age, and Boss Tom is now the de facto king of Kansas City. And that's where we're going to end today's episode. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review me on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. The more people who give me a good rating, the easier it will be for others to find me. You can find me online at homegrownkc.wordpress.com. My email is homegrownkcpodcast.gmail.com. If you wanted to reach out and talk to me about the show, you have any questions or you have episode suggestions, you can do that through my email. I'd love to hear from y'all. I'm also on Facebook at Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter as homegrownkc. I know times are hard right now, but if you want to support the show, you can do so by subscribing to patreon.com slash homegrownkc, or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Here's how it works. You sign up, create an account, subscribe to the show. You'll be charged that day, and then on the first of every month afterwards. It's five bucks a month. This will give you access to exclusive episodes that you can only find on those two platforms. Everything that you guys give to the show is going to go back into the show. Uh, it'll pay for gas. While I do my research, uh, thankfully the library got rid of late fees. Otherwise, I would owe them a couple hundred by now. Everyone I've talked to so far has been amazing. I've talked to uh, the director of the Black Archives in Mid-America. I've talked to Chuck Haddix from the Mars Sound Archives. I've talked to local historian Pat O'Neill about Irish history. You guys will love these episodes. They were so much fun. 
I will also give a shout out to supporters. So let me take a moment to do that. Mike, Bjorn, and Linda, thank you for your support. You guys are awesome. I also want to give a special shout out to Becky, who was the first of my listeners to reach out to me. She has some personal family history related to Pendergast, and she shared a lot of that history with me. It was super special. Thanks, girl. I hope we can talk again soon. Thanks goes out to my sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, who created my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And last but not least, to local libraries who enabled me to gather all my research. Thanks for listening. seem to get you off my mind.